Good evening, everybody. Once again, to Dahlem, to the Ethnologisches Museum. Uh, dear Bernd, I'm very proud that you choose this location for this event. We are both in a sort of farewell or leaving our um, actual building. You are in reconstruction and we are moving. I'm very happy also that in the Wörterbuch der Dinge you decided one topic to be the ding, the thing, das ding, not saying object, thank you. And I'm also very pleased and happy about your guests that you invited tonight. So good night, dear Sharon. Uh, I'm happy that you are already in Berlin. Good evening, Arjun. I'm very happy to hear you might be in Berlin. I don't know what's with you, Tony, but today you're here. <laughs> and uh, we talk about das Ding in the Wörterbuch der Gegenwart. I, I better don't translate it because there are hundreds of possibilities to translate it. You also have the language, I think, as a topic. Um, we have uh, three papers and uh, then a discussion. And in the beginning, we uh, have Bernd's introduction. So I should be very briefly with my uh, welcome. Just to mention one thing, um, we are not yet closed. You can still see our exhibitions a couple of weeks. So um, I hope you come back again over the day uh, and see the exhibition before January 11. So that's all what I have to say today. Thanks again for coming and Bernd, Let's take over. Oh. The light. Auch von meiner Seite ein herzliches Willkommen im Ethnologischen Museum. Und ich möchte mich zuerst bei Viola König für die großzügige Aufnahme und Gastfreundschaft bedanken die es uns nicht nur erlaubt, hier ein Programm zu realisieren, sondern uns zudem einen Ort anbietet, der kaum geeigneter für unser heutiges Unternehmen sein könnte. Bei der Organisation der Veranstaltung hat uns das gesamte Team des Ethnologischen Museums hilfsbereit unterstützt. Ein ganz besonderer Dank gilt in diesem Zusammenhang Friederike Berlekamp, wissenschaftliche Mitarbeiterin des Museums, ohne die der heutige Abend so nicht möglich gewesen wäre. Bedanken möchte ich mich auch bei meinen Mitstreitern Sima Reinig, Olga von Schubert und Stefan Aue, die mit mir dieses Projekt entwickeln und jede Ausgabe konzeptionell und organisatorisch vorbereiten. Last but not least, I would like to extend a warm welcome to our main protagonists this evening, Sharon McDonald, Arjun Abadurai and Tony Bennett. We are really grateful that you accepted our invitation so that we are able to organize an evening with three worldwide renowned scholars who have worked for decades, decades on our theme tonight. The project Wörterbuch der Gegenwart, Dictionary of Now, is part of our four-year project 100 Years of Now, 100 Jahre Gegenwart. This long-term project aims at an analysis of our time, a time of profound and fast transformations. One way to look at these transformations is to study the language, 
our major tool to understand and articulate the realities around us. In order to do this, we invented the dictionary project. But it is not a dictionary in the classical sense, which lists more or less all the word in use. We rather concentrate on certain keywords, abstract nouns, which are organizing and reflecting whole clusters of meaning. They allow us to explore geographies of the language in use. The aim of the project is to develop new cartographies and thereby ideas. Since in times of transition, these words have no fixed meanings, rather their meanings are in flux, it becomes important to, to develop means of navigation which allow to trace the process of sign constitution on the one side and reality formation on the other side. One way to do this is to look at concrete practices. In the case of things, it is a practice of collection and of representation. For the notion of thing in which we are interested this evening, the museum therefore becomes, with its collection, the appropriate context. And we are not at any museum, we are at a museum which on the one side hosts things, the meaning of which was and is negotiated constantly. And we are at the same time at a museum which is getting transformed into a new institution, the Humboldt Forum, which allows to ask the question how institutions define things and thereby the world we are living in. At the end of my brief introduction, I want to present you one example which illustrates the questions we have in mind. For this, I would like to invite you to a journey in space and time. Ah, okay. <laughs> what you can see here is a head of a Buddha statue. The statue belongs to the Gandhara culture, second to sixth century after Christ. That means it comes from an area which nowadays belongs to Pakistan, a country with a population of with which about 90% are Muslims. It is in a certain sense also not an original Buddha statue, since Gandhara culture was influenced by Roman Greek culture, and this culture reflects the ascetic ideals of the Western influences. But there are even more layers of meaning to be discovered. The sculpture is not an original, but a replica. Where is the original? It arrived a long time ago in an American collection. The artist Michael Chu, who presented this work entitled Body Obfuscatus, Space Baby, at the HKW in 2008, likes to play with these different kind of contexts with original and copy, the question of authenticity in the world of technical reproduction of works. By making a copy of a Gandhara Buddha, he asked the question, were not the Gandhara Buddhas already replicas of other originals? Was the Gandhara statue not already part of a local mass production? But even the copy of the Buddha head is not easily accessible in this installation. It is surrounded by a helmet of cameras which project the images of the head on screens, screens which surround the sculpture. There is not one image, 
but a multitude of images of the same Buddha in a world where reality becomes more and more technologically mediated. These images are contextualized in different life situations. They create different worldviews. The image of Buddha, because of its transfer to the West, first by sculpture, later by images, shapes Western perceptions of Buddhism and to some extent the West's notion of, of what Asia or the East is. These views, the perceptions and evaluations of these images are one context for the destructions and the demolition of these figures in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. When the Taliban attacked these images, they also, and in particular, attacked the Western appreciation of these images. There is another important shift in this work of Michael Chu. He transfers an object which was classified in the cultural history of Europe as exotica from a context of an anthropological museum into the art space with clear former references on the one side to the tradition of the ready-made, and then, of course, because of the camera surrounding the Buddha, he alludes to Namchung Pike's TV Buddha. But whereas Pike's work could still be read as a dualistic situation of East meets West, Michael Chu's Space Baby transcends these dualistic categories altogether. Michael Chu thematizes in this work how things are traveling how they define worldviews, and how they are getting defined by the contexts they are put into. He questions the notion of an authentic meaning of a thing and demonstrates what institutional contexts, such as museums, do to the things. Thinking about the work, I wondered what could currently be more expensive in the art market. Michael Chu's work with a copy of a Buddha statue? or the original Gandhara statue coming out of the workshops of mass production in the Indus Valley. Now I have the pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Arjun Abadurai. Arjun Abadurai grew up in Bombay and after receiving his PhD from the University of Chicago, he held professional chairs at Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the University of Pennsylvania and has held visiting appointments at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, the University of Delhi, and many more. Today, Arjun Abadurai is Professor for Media, Culture, and Communication at the New York University, and is also visiting professor at the Humboldt University for the years 2016 to 2017. Apart from having become a good friend of mine, Arjun Abadurai, has been one of the most important thinkers for the new approach of the Haus der Kulturen der Welt since the early 2000s. His paradigmatic 1996 publication, Modernity at Large, Cultural Dimensions of Globalization, strongly informed our project in the Desert of Modernity in 2008. That project was dedicated to the connection between colonialism and modernist styles in architecture and design. In 2009, Arjun was our keynote lecturer for the conference Beyond Multiculturalism. In 2011, he was part of the Global Room discussions of our festival Überlebenskunst. And last but not least, in 2015, he spoke at the conference Global Moderni Modernisms. 
He is one of the most philosophical anthropologists of our times and has published theories of globalization and the global condition and the geography of anger. And most importantly for us tonight, he has a paradigmatic theory of the social life of things, a book from 1986, and the migration of objects and commodities. His most recent book analyzed the role of language in finance and trading and its impact on the 2008 crisis. Welcome with me, Arjun Abadurai. Is bright. I'm glad I got a look at all of you before I'm looking at these lights. Well, uh, I'm honored to be part of this event on the concept of thing, which is, I'm just checking my time to make sure I don't run over my assigned time, uh, which is part of the Dictionary of Now project uh, of the HKW. Uh, this event uh, is, of course, being co-hosted by the Ethnological Museum here in Dalem, uh, which is soon to become part of the Humboldt Forum, as you have heard. Uh, thus, my theme, which refers to the migration of objects, might also have some implications for the migration of museums. So I thank Bernd uh, Scherer for this opportunity, and of course, all uh, uh, Viola and her colleagues who were very kind to introduce us to some small uh, sample of these extraordinary collections earlier today. Uh, it is now commonly said that objects are mobile, animate, and agentive subjects, which are capable of expressing purpose, desire, and telos. This insight has been interactively produced by scholars from a, ranging, uh, from a range of disciplines, from science and technology studies, notably Bruno Latour, philosophy, Isabel Stengers, to art criticism, uh, W.J.T. Mitchell, anthropology, political theory, Jane Bennett, for example, and feminist theory, Karen Barad, and many other people. This is a small sampling. This is a very live space now. My own 1986 book, which Bernd was kind enough to mention on the social life of things, was an early indicator of uh, this point of view. Today, the debate about the line between human and non-human actors has become part of bigger debates about climate change, the Anthropocene, robotics, informatics, the life sciences, and more. So the, con uh, the concern of curators, ethnologists, and museum professionals with how to curate, represent, and display objects has become inevitably more heated and controversial. Furthermore, the building uh, of all Western ethnological collections is inevitably tied up with difficult issues of conquest, commerce, and power in the age of empire. So now some basic observations about things or dings, which is a word I like much better than thing. Uh, 
uh, it calls on one's attention. Uh, not all things are of equal interest to ethnological museums. In my view, and this is, uh, as we were saying earlier today, a matter of huge debate which we won't get arrested by, but just to tell you how I think, objects are that group of things, so it's a subgroup of things, which is of special interest uh, to such collections, that is like the one in Dalim, because they are things that have been deliberately crafted, designed or manufactured for some special purpose in their places and times of origin. These purposes can be political, aesthetic, utilitarian or religious, and sometimes they combine all these features. Indeed, this combination of features is what makes some objects uniquely interesting for museums, for they condense meaning, value, and life worlds in faraway places and times. The materiality of such objects is tied up with their genuine, with their pedagogical value for what they can show, teach, and illustrate. It is thus no surprise that such objects are not often discussed in terms of their journey from their original homes to museums, but rather are made pure tools of representation, icons of other ways of living. What is lost in this erasure is a vital part of the biography of these objects. Uh, the late Igor Kopitov was the first to take this biographical approach, at least in anthropology, to objects in his important essay in the collection that I mentioned, uh, 1986, on the social life of things. Kopitov's main observation was that objects move through many states and meanings in the course of their lives, and this Buddha uh, story is a perfect uh, illustration, and can shift from being icons to being heirlooms to being luxuries to being personal treasures to becoming junk or trash, and perhaps emerging again as icons. My own early insight was to say that these cultural biographies are part of larger social lives which span long periods of time and large geographical distances and reflect complex circuits of knowledge, trade, and connoisseurship. Thus, the cultural biographies and the social lives of such objects are two sides of the same coin. In the case of ethnological objects which end up in Western museums, these object biographies and social lives are tied up with complex histories in which empire, science, the market, and Western popular curiosity all play some significant role. This complexity can be seen in the three objects that I will now briefly discuss, which are parts of the Dalin collection. So may I ask uh, for some help, perhaps? From, see, I will try. Ah, <laughs> unbelievable. It's here. The first example, uh, which is the slide you now see, is from the indigenous, from indigenous North America, and is described this way in the Dalam catalog, or at least the catalog which I saw, which is an overall catalog, not a specialist catalog of this, but the big one. Uh, it, and here I read from the catalog. Prince Maximilian Zuvid, if I pronounce this right, brought this robe of bison hide, along with 15 others, back with him to Germany from his expedition along the upper reaches of the Missouri between 1832 and 1834 in the company of the painter Karl Bodmer. 
He had traveled across the west of North America and in the process had assembled a large number of botanical, zoological, and ethnological specimens. As early as 1844, he had sold part of his ethnological collection to the Prussian Royal Art Chamber in Berlin, including 12 painted bison robes. That's the short description, inevitably, because there are hundreds of objects described in this catalog. It goes on this way. Such, this is still, I'm reading from the Dalam catalog text. Such robes protected the upper body of their wearers in colder weather. The outer side was worn against the wearer's skin, meaning that the painted side was visible, primarily on the wearer's back. The painted motifs may relate to the heroic deeds of a warrior, or they may be, they may be lists of gifts received, and there were sometimes geometric abstract motifs. In the example illustrated here, there appears not to be a unified composition, but a series of separate scenes uh, that have no obvious connection to each other. Especially striking is the great number of bisons with various types of deer gambling among them. There are also bears, tortoises, lizards, birds, and dragonflies. The human figures depicted are either moving about on foot or are on horseback, a number of them carrying large cylindrical shields. At the lower right, we can clearly identify two bison dancers with spears, shields, and bison masks. This appears to be a representation of hunt-related magic and of success in hunting, in which various mythological beings play an important part. That's the reading from the text. Now I return to my own voice and my own text. This text, uh, which I've just read, to you illustrates my argument about the relatively minor role given to the journey of this object from the middle of the North American continent to the Dalem collection. The first short paragraph gives us some tantalizing clues about this journey, but we could certainly benefit from a more detailed analysis and interpretation of the complex biography of this specific object. Here are some questions that would tell the viewer and all of us a much richer story, in my view. Questions like this. What took Prince Maximilian Zuvid to North America in the 1830s? Why was he in the company of the painter Karl Bodmer? Was he influenced by the same impulse that took Alexander von Humboldt to the Americas in search of scientific knowledge? What were the conditions of the sale of his collections to the Prussian Royal Art Collection? Did he have such sale in mind when he acquired these objects? In what sort of exchange? Were these objects acquired from their owners in North America? Was there already in Germany an interest in objects from native societies in North America? How did the understanding of these objects in their original context develop? Answers to such questions and many more could tell us a great deal more about this object and also about the general relationship between objects, royal taste, ethnology and scientific curiosity in Germany in the middle of the 19th century. Such knowledge could complicate and enrich uh, the second paragraph of the text, which I read to you, that tells us about the significance of these robes in their own indigenous context. Uh, now, the big question is, can I go to the Second slide. So this next slide comes also, Dalem, uh, from Cameroon, and was a gift from an African king to the German Emperor Wilhelm II in 1908. 
And now again, I read from the text which I saw. Uh, by the way, I didn't know these objects, so I just looked and found some interesting objects and simply took the text as it was and tried to think about it. So this is not an expert analysis based on some secret knowledge I have of these or any of the other objects. This throne, now I read from the Dalim catalog text, which was made for King Ensango of Bamum in the 19th century is one of the most important objects in the Berlin Cameroon collection. The kingdom of Bamum played an important role under King Enjoya during the German colonial period. Enjoya emphasized his particular relationship with the colonial power in sending this throne of his predecessor in 1908 to his counterpart, which is in quotes, counterpart, the German Emperor Wilhelm II. The throne is carved in wood and covered in cloth. The cloth is in turn embroidered all over with cowrish uh, uh, snails and glass beads. The two human figures at the rear of the seat represent twins, these being associated in many African countries with particular power and supernatural strength. The representation of figures on the footrest, the snakes that support the seat, and the rich use of glass beads reveal that this is a royal throne. Glass beads, which since antiquity had been exported to Africa from the Mediterranean and later from Bohemia and India, were reserved in Cameroon for use in royal insignia. Their perceived value was determined by the relative rarity of this import, but also by the durability of their gleaming colors. End of uh, Dalam text. And I'm not selected, that's the text associated fully with this object. So my commentary resumes that this text is also something, in my view, of a missed opportunity. Uh, it gives very little attention to the complex and controversial German conquest of parts of Africa and also omits much discussion of the presence of the British and French in West Africa and their eventual displacement uh, of the German presence there. It also fails to notice that the African king who made this gift to the German emperor was an unusually interesting ruler who introduced important religious, commercial, and linguistic features into the region under his control. The whole matter of gifts from smaller rulers in Asia, Africa, and other parts of the world to European colonial powers could also be a lens into the intricate links between gift, trade, diplomacy, and empire in many parts of the world. Above all, it could be an occasion to see how a single object could be a royal icon, a gift, an art object, and an ethnological specimen at different points in its biography. Now, the third slide. No. There. That's it. So the third slide from the Dalam collections that I will very briefly discuss is a stella from Guatemala, early, early one, described as follows in the Dalam catalog. Now, again, I read from the catalog. In the 1870s, when a stretch of ground was being cleared in preparation for new coffee plantations on the hilly Pacific coast of Guatemala, in the region that was once home to the Cozumalhuapa uh, culture, there came to light a series of large stone sculptures. Adolf Bastian, of course, a fabled figure in the history of ethnology and of this museum, founder of the Ethnologic uh, Ethnologisch Museum came to an agreement with the landowner 
allowing these archaeological pieces, not only this one, to be acquired for Berlin. With the help of locally based architects and their assistants, the large stones were, with great effort, transported on ox-drawn carts a distance of 50 kilometers to the port of San Jose in order to be shipped to Europe, the relief-bearing sides having been separated from the rest of the enormously weighty blocks. The reliefs in question are depictions of the ritual ball game. The aim of this game was to use the hips to push a rubber ball through a stone ring. Each player accordingly wore a protective yoke, a yugo. The symbolic character of the ritual ball game is revealed by the creation myth of the Kiche Maya, which describes the divine twins descending into the underworld, Zibalba, in order to test themselves in play against the lords of Zibalba and emerge victorious. Here, one player wearing hip protection and an elaborate headdress is shown standing on the torso of a defeated player whom he's killing. The first player still holds a flint knife in one hand and the severed head of his opponent in the other. Blood flows from the severed head in the form of snakes. The symbolic significance of the ball game is also evident in the images depicted on all eight stelae, not just this one, in that the players are shown in communion with the gods. End of Dalan text. Now again, my commentary. The story of the journey of this large object from Guatemala to Berlin has echoes of the famous piano-moving scene from Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. It is probably similar to the movement of many massive and monumental objects from various parts of the world to European museums in the last three centuries. Here, too, many questions pique our curiosity. What kind of agreement did Adolf Bastian come to with the landowner who controlled this stella? Was it commercial or political? And was it free or coerced? Who provided the funds for this massive exercise? What sort of engineering skills were required to separate the stella from the stone wall foundation? Why did local architects and craftsmen agree to help with this transfer? How did this sort of transcontinental transaction relate to the growth and development of coffee plantations in Mesoamerica? Were the laborers who did the actual removal and moving of this object free of forced labor? Answers to each and all of these questions would do a great deal to tell us why a stone representation of an exotic ball game was worth so much to an important German ethnologist and his intended German audience. So these are very short examples of what comes to mind when you think of the journey as opposed to the pure meaning. And now I want to go to some more general comments, having talked about these three examples, which of course could be examples could, that could be found in other, uh, a part of a group that could be found in other major ethnological examples. We happen to be in Dalam, so I speak of objects here. So this next little section is called Objects as Migrants and begins to develop my more general argument. I began this lecture with the comment that humans and objects are now widely seen as sharing many characteristics that make it hard to draw an absolute boundary between them. Objects too have lives and biographies and furthermore they can be seen to exert force, purpose, even motive in the sense of Spinoza's idea of conatus. Some scholars like my friend uh, Mitchell, WJT, see images, see images also a type of object as having wants and desires, as demanding something of us, which is not a mere projection 
of our own wishes onto them. That is because objects, especially those that are the product of deliberate human design, carry the force of their histories, their journeys, the accidents and adventures that befall them, and these often show up in their shape, form, and force. Objects are not simply mirrors of our own norms and perceptions in any given moment of viewing. They also resist interpretation, choreography, and manipulation by those humans who might seek to make them speak in a particular way. To understand this, one only has to go to an art museum with a child, or to any museum, really, with a child, who may see in these icons and forms puzzles and wonders that have little to do with official adult histories of interpretation, curation, and taste. In this sense, objects do exert some sort of demand upon us. If one wishes to go further and look at the nature of materials such as stone, paint, leather, marble, and cloth, among other materials, it is increasingly possible to see these materials in what we may call a geological perspective. And here I'm referring to the work of people like uh, Jussi Parika in media studies and others who are seeing media and environment in a 40,000 year perspective. In other words, seeing the whole skin of the earth as a pulsating, vital, mediating surface, not just as a history of 200 years of media tools. Anyway, that's a side point. Uh, so uh, this view, this geological perspective, as reflecting long histories of nature only partly informed by human history and design. Such views of materiality in nature have become increasingly acceptable. In this light, asking the sort of questions I've asked about these three objects from Dalam, from this collection, not only shows that objects have social life, but also allows us to ask how these objects can be made to truly speak in their own voice, even if the language of objects is obscure, and they often appear mute and passive. This is where the idea that objects too may be seen as migrants begins to raise a new perspective on museums, collections, and curatorship in the contemporary world. And that is the twist, basically, I have to offer on a subject matter and on a theme on which all of you have many ideas, which I've mostly just recombined up to this point. But when I say objects as migrants, it opens up a slightly different uh, view. The question of cultural objects that uh, will find a new home and a new life through the Humboldt Forum is not usually connected to the question of refugees and other migrants and the sort of new life they might find in Germany. But these refugees need a new story as much as the objects in Berlin's museums do. On the face of it, the objects that have ended up in German custodianship did not come to Germany willingly or by their own volition. Like all objects discovered through conquest, collection, and curation in the great museums of the West, they are accidental refugees. The human migrants who come to Germany today are largely there by their own volition through acts of agency, aspiration, and courage, which allowed them to take enormous risks uh, uh, to get to cross the border into Germany. The objects in German museums, especially the museums of Berlin, have historically been given voice through the work of the scholar scholars, curators, exhibition professionals, and museum educators who ended up as trustees of these objects. I've tried to show that the stories told on behalf of these objects are usually not about their journeys of 
displacement, relocation, and rehabilitation, which are normally treated as irrelevant or of small relevance to their cultural significance. Rather, these stories are about their roles, uses, and meanings in the places from which they originally came. Again, I say this is true of every ethnological collection I know. I picked the diamond because we are here. Thus, these objects become texts or, te or tools to tell stories about distant places, histories, and cosmologies. Their status as accidental refugees is rarely voiced, exhibited, or interpreted for the general public. In short, these objects are made into testaments of fixity and not of circulation, though complex processes of circulation and displacement are what, in my view, is most important about them. With human refugees, the situation is virtually the reverse. Their stories usually focus, the stories about them, that is, usually focus on their dislocation, disenfranchisement, and suffering as key elements of who they are, both for those who welcome them to Germany and for those who are suspicious or fearful of them. These human refugees are seen as damaged, incomplete, and unstable and are viewed as disturbances and irregularities in the framework of citizenship, sovereignty, and belonging that characterizes other citizens of Germany. Even when their pasts are seen as worthy of compassion, their futures are seen as illeg illegible and problematic. In narrative terms, they are characters in search of a plot, players in a story without a resolution. The refugees who arrive in Germany today are seen as artifacts of excessive circulation, while the objects that already live in German collections are seen, as, are seen exclusively as fixed and stable. A better balance could be achieved if refugee objects and refugee humans could be seen as complex and interactive mixtures of stability and dislocation. Of course, it is not as if the foreign objects and the refugees who are today in Germany come from exactly the same places or tell neatly connected stories, since their geographies and dislocations are the product of different pressures, contexts, and accidents. But they share the need for stories, and this need might be, might be more creatively met if, these, if they are seen as part of a general story of the way in which foreign lives can find a dignified home in Germany. Such a perspective takes us further uh, than a simple repetition of older criticisms of collections such as those in Dalem and in many, many other ethnological collections. Criticisms which focus on Orientalism, racism, ethnocentrism, and so on. These criticisms have some validity, of course, but a much deeper strategy for ethnological collections can be found if we look at the objects in these collections also as migrants, indeed even as refugees or exiles, which share much with those human beings who are today causing much debate in Europe. If we can see both human and non-human agents as having history, voice, purpose, and force, perhaps we will treat our human migrants with a deeper sense of their humanity just as we treat our astrological objects as more than mute representations of faraway times and places. It's a win-win perspective. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Arjun, for this win-win perspective. Our second speaker tonight is one of the most important theorists of the museum and its institutional logic. Tony Bennett is research professor in social and cultural theory at the University of Western Sydney and a member of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and of the Academy of the Social Sciences in the UK. He wrote one of the most paradigmatic studies about the birth of the museum as early as 1995, where he analyzes the rise of a visual representation of order in the 18th and 19th century. In his essay entitled Civic Seeing, Museums and the Organization of Vision on the Bourgeois Gaze from 2006, Bennett, following Foucault, describes the power structure of visual education of the public in museums, conveying normative representations of the self, nature, and appropriate behavior. The essay appeared in the Companion to Museum Studies, which is edited by our third speaker tonight, Sharon MacDonald. So the two of them have collaborated before on the question of things in the museum. In his 2004 publication, Past Beyond Memory, Evolution Museums, Colonialism, Bennett in particular addresses the connection between colonialism and the theory of evolution and highlights the culture and political implications of the natural history museum developed in the 19th century. While his research up to that point is dedicated to analyzing political and power structures and its effects on cultural phenomena, in 2013, with Making Culture, Changing Society, Bennett makes clear that culture is not a set of visual orders, signs and symbols, but a form of knowledge practice, which can develop strategies of dealing with difficult legacies rather than just reproducing established models of representation. Bennett is a convening co-author of the forthcoming volume Collecting, Ordering, Governing, Anthropology, Museums, and Liberal Government, a collection of essays about post-war forms of multicultural governance, cultural conceptions of difference, and post-colonial policy and practice in museums. Please welcome with me Tony Bennett. Too quick. That'll do. Uh, well, oh gosh, it is bright. <laughs> um, I'm very. I was impressed by what you said, Arjun, but I'm now impressed that you managed to say anything at all. Uh, first of all, let me say how pleased uh, I too am to be here and honoured, and to thank uh, Bernard um, for that very generous uh, introduction, but also for inviting me to be here on behalf of the House of World Culture and also to thank uh, Viola for hosting this event and inviting me to be here as a part of it. I've only been in Berlin for a, a couple of days, if that, just a day and a half, I think, but I can tell that there's a real buzz about the politics of things and museums in Berlin. Um, and so I hope that I'll be able to contribute to that this evening by reflecting on some of the political issues around things, museum things, uh, in Australia. So I'm going to begin with two questions. First, how are we to capture the mobility of things across museum networks of collecting and practices of exhibition? 
And how are we to capture the relations between the constant material properties of such things and the variable meanings, functions, and effects that arrive from their inscription in different settings? These are my two questions. My title, Mutable the Mutable Mobiles, attempts to capture this interplay by building on Bruno Latour's conception of immutable mobiles, that was a very, very mutable mobile, <clears throat> of immutable mobiles as things which in being moved from one setting to another retain their material properties, but which when inscribed in a new set of relations with other things, texts, institutions and environments, prove to be quite mutable with regard to the kinds of work that they perform. And I want to illustrate these relations between the Im immutability and the mutability of museum things through a number of examples, but primarily with regard to some of the complexities characterizing the relations between anthropology, museums, and indigenous communities in contemporary Australia. My central argument is that if we are to interpret museum things as, as mutable immutable mobiles, their mutability is a product of a complex weave of not only the more immediate discursive and institutional factors that shape their collection and exhibition in museums, but also the circulation of concepts across museums and affiliated disciplinary networks and of the wider forms of political agency that are brought to bear upon them. But let me, as we were asked to do, start with a specific object associated with this museum. And I've chosen the cloak made of woven, woven cedar bark that the Royal Prussian Art Chamber acquired when Captain James Cook's collections were auctioned in 1819. I've chosen this as the only item I could find in the section of the museum's guidebook devoted to Oceania and Australia that allow me to make a connection, albeit an indirect one, to Australia. Somewhat irritating, the Oceania was dominated by New Zealand. <laughs> the cloak was captured by Cook from Vancouver Island in 1788, made from red cedar it was worn by both men and women of the local Nootka people. When Franz Boas worked under Adolf Bastian at the museum in the mid-1880s, he was assigned to work on cataloguing and installing its British Columbia and Alaskan collections. It is then likely, but I don't know for sure, it's likely that he was familiar with this object, one which in its generic form he was to give a new museum meaning to, um, when during his period at the American Museum of Natural History, he included similar cloaks in his life group of Northwest Coast Indians. Here, the cloaks were integrated into a depiction of a territorially grounded way of life, organized around the processes of working red cedar into clothing. While by no means Boas's invention, he developed such life group displays as an alternative to and critique of the earlier typological method in which artifacts, tools, weapons, works of art, and so on, were disconnected from their originating social context to be arranged as parts of universal evolutionary sequences leading from the simple to the complex. In place of such hierarchical and developmental arrangements of the relationships between such artifacts, and by implication, therefore, hierarchical arrangements of the relations between peoples and cultures, Boas's displays sought to evoke the distinctive qualities of ways of life that were specific to particular culture areas, as, they, as he called them, and as his followers called them. Cultures which, rather than being ranked hierarchically, were to be understood on their own terms. In truth, Boas's cultural relativism had its limits, 
real and significant limits. But it's the concept of cultural areas that I'm interested in here. Because this concept itself, like things, proved to be highly mobile, moving through international anthropology and museum networks as part of a set of concepts and procedures for collecting and ordering objects and texts from indigenous peoples that provided an alternative to evolutionary exhibition practices in many different contexts. The concept of the culture area traveled to Australia through the work of anthropologist Norman Tyndale, whose 1940 map, you can't see the details here, but whose 1940 map showed the distribution of Aboriginal tribes in Australia based upon culture area theory, a map that provided the template for subsequent maps plotting the regional distribution of Aboriginal languages and cultures. This is true of the 1996 map produced by David Horton of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, which connects the Aboriginal groups identified in terms of language, ceremonies, songs and dance, and connects these to different tracts of country. The version of this map that I show here currently accompanies an exhibition of, uh, and I'm uh, sorry, it's a bad picture. The reason it's a bad picture is I took it myself. Um, the version shown here currently accompanies an exhibition of Aboriginal and other materials arranged by the uh, Gugu Yimithia people at the Cooktown Museum in northern Queensland. Cooktown is so named as the place where, some eight years before he acquired the cedar bark cloak from Vancouver Island that has found its way to this museum, Cook had docked his ship, the HMS Endeavour, in order to repair the damage it had suffered in a collision with the Great Barrier Reef. Cooktown was the site of an antagonistic encounter between crews, Cook's, excuse me, Cook's crew, who had supplemented their depleted rations with a catch of sea turtles, and the local Aboriginal people, for whom the sea turtle had both a mythical significance as well as being an important part of their food supply. When Cook's crew refused to share their catch of turtles with the local Aboriginal people, this led to angry confrontation and a standoff between the two groups that was eventually brought to a close through a gesture of reconciliation, a gesture that's narrated in the entrance to the museum, initiated, and this is important, initiated by the Aboriginal leader, Gamu Yambarigu. At the site of what was thus the first recorded act of reconciliation between Europeans and Aborigines, this is 1770, it's about 18 years before the settlement of the penal colony in Australia, Cooktown was also the place from which Cook set sail to return to England, stopping by what he called Possession Island, where, in spite of his recent exchanges with the Gugu Yimithia people, he declared Australia to be uninhabited and claimed possession of it in the name of the king. But the exhibit that I'm mainly concerned with, and that will be, so to speak, my exemplary museum thing, is a canoe. But I'm not going to say anything further about this exhibit right now. Rather, I will, so to speak, leave it just hanging there as something I'll come back to after a couple of detours. The first detour will illustrate more concretely what I mean by the mutability of museum things. And it concerns the processes through which, in 19th century Britain, the objects associated with earlier collections took on new meanings in being integrated into public museums with a mandate for shaping their visitors into worthy citizens. 
These processes were protracted, hesitant, and often fragile in view of the resistance they encountered from earlier collections and exhibition practices. Stephanie Moser, in her book, Wondrous Curiosities, a very wondrous book, offers a telling account of how the principles of wonder resisted attempts to enlist the British Museum's Egyptian collections that had been acquired in the 17th and 18th centuries for pedagogical purposes directed toward the expanded publics the museum had been enjoined to address in a series of 19th century parliamentary inquiries. There were other factors too. Old Testament assessments of Egyptian art and culture as idolatrous. Winkleman's influence on art history's interpretation of Egyptian art as less developed than Greek and Roman art. The lingering influence of the culture of curiosity in depriving Egyptian antiquities of any didactic qualities. And the overloading of collections gathered in the aftermath of Britain's defeat of France in 1801 with the symbolic freight of British military power. These, alongside the principles of wonder, are among the discursive restraints that prevented Egyptian artifacts from being integrated into the forms of rational and historicized cultural pedagogy that informed the British Museum's exhibition of Greek collections, for example. They were instead presented as wondrous curiosities intended to surprise and entertain in their gigantism. Gigantic in all its proportions, a reviewer wrote of the museum's 1808 arrangement of Egyptian architecture, it seems to have aimed at overwhelming the imagination by vastness, exhibiting a severe uniformity of execution that banishes every idea of inventive freedom and indicates the designs of an insulated and monastic corporation. The 1890 scene at the Egyptian Sculpture Gallery, by contrast, is one in which the ascending prestige and influence of Egyptology and the significance of electric lighting in the development of new technologies of illumination are brought together to inscribe the Egyptian sculptures in a new space of liberal vision in which freely assembled groups co-mingle to absorb the lessons of the still colossal statues whose thingness, however, is now lent a different inflection by the pedagogical organization of the environment in which they are exhibited. Note, for example, the stands for the information books placed by the statues uh, in the left foreground. The same objects then in the same institution but operating as different things, if, as I shall do for the purposes of my argument today, we interpret the difference between objects and things to include in the latter the full set of institutional, technical, and discursive forces which translate the object's material properties into a distinctly, distinctively socialized things. Having said that, I recognize that this is a one-sided cut into an enormous literature running from Kierkegaard's classic essay on the thing through Michel Serre's quasi-objects and Arjuna Padura's social life of things to the now burgeoning literature on materialities to which Arjun referred, in which the relations between things and objects and between both persons and subjects have been probed. And a case opposite to the one that I've just put regarding the relations between things and objects has been argued. Bill Brown, in his introduction to the edited collection Things, for example, argues that it is things that lie outside the grid of museal exhibition, outside the order of objects. But I'm going to hold to the position that I've taken in suggesting, following the tour's take on Kierkegaard, that the thing is the site of a gathering, of a set of capacities and affordances that are folded into it from the relations in which it is set. But I'll return to this position later and probe some of its ambiguities. 
but my more immediate task is to look at some of the ways in which objects have been shaped into new museum things through the interactions between indigenous knowledges, anthropological conceptions of culture areas, and museums in contemporary Australia. And I'm going to do so first by looking briefly at the Encounters exhibition held in late 2015, early 2016 at the National Museum of Australia. This comprised a recuration, if there is such a word, a recuration of the Enduring Civilization e exhibition that had been held earlier in 2015 at the British Museum. Both exhibitions focused exclusively on Aboriginal items from the British Museum that had traveled there via a variety of routes through a range of colonial mechanisms of collection. But the Encounters exhibition, which is the one held at the National Museum of Australia, was distinctive, different from the one held at the British Museum, in its presentation of the materials it exhibited as, at last, reacquiring their true meaning in being temporarily returned to the communities from which they had been taken. The exhibition was informed by inputs from a range of these indigenous communities coordinated by anthropologists and indigenous curators acting on behalf of the National Museum of Australia and the British Museum. But it was the community involvements that provided the, or at least a distinctive signature of the exhibition. One of its main themes was that of restoring to objects their true thingness via varied forms of engagement with them, textual commentaries, enactments of their place in ritual practices on the part of representatives of the territorially defined cultures, the cultural areas to which they were temporarily reconnected by being brought from Britain back to Australia. Not forever, but for the exhibition. This was echoed in the claims of community representatives. Oops. Um, in, sorry, in an important episode in the history of anthropology, Franz Boas contended that the anthropologists could acquire that no true understanding of an object unless, he said, the Indian would tell us what it really means. This notion that, as it were, the indigenous subject can alone tell us what an object really means was echoed in the claims of indigenous community representatives, uh, claims that accompanied the exhibition, that only they were the people, they were the only people who could reanimate the objects with their true stories, that could, so to speak, restore to them their true thingness. Without stories, without knowledge, these are just objects. Without people, they're just objects. But the ambiguity here is that these materials are rescued from their fate, or said to be rescued from their fate as mere museum objects, only via the ways in which the voices of the people who reclaim them are staged in the museum. This is a staging of an indigenous voice. We can see here how an anthropology shaped by the Boasian legacy and contemporary indigenous community knowledges and practices meet to simultaneously restore to the objects both their true meaning and their true thingness. It is in being restored to the culture. It's suggested that they become real again. This is the people, this is their culture. This is the real stuff. It's only real when it's back in the culture from which it was taken. This message was reinforced by a section of the exhibition devoted to objects without a story, which lacking an appropriate anchorage in the culture of a people rooted in a particular territory, a particular cultural area, fell short of their own reality. If an object doesn't have a place in a cultural area, no matter what value a museum places upon it, it's not real. 
This is an example then of the new qualities that indigenous materials take on through the processes of what Nicholas Thomas has called reverse fieldwork, in which museum archives constitute the field in which indigenous curators, artists, and community leaders work to identify the itineraries and provenances of those materials and ideally plot the routes through which they are to be taken back to the communities they came from. To be clear, I'm not validating such productions of these indigenous things as their real truth. These are productions like any other. But what matters is their political salience. And it's this that I now want to return to through a particular exhibit, the Griegel Shield. This is the most politically charged item in the exhibition owing to its associations with what indigenous Australians now interpret as Britain's first act of colonial violence in Australia. The shield was taken from a Guigal warrior called Kuman after he had been shot and wounded in the leg by a member of the Cook Expedition of 1770. The object of repatriation claims on the part of Kuman's descendants, there is still also a dispute as to whether um, the hole in the shield was caused by a bullet, as Cook's diary suggests, or whether, as Joseph Banks claimed, it was created by a single pointed lance. Either way, the shield now stands in the eyes of indigenous Australians as the harbinger of what was to come when 18 years later the establishment of a penal colony at Port Jackson, now Sydney, marked the beginning of Australia's colonial occupation. But this is not the shield's only meaning. Through its connections with Cook's 1770 voyage, it also provides a route back to my starting point, the cedar cloak that Cook collected from Vancouver Island, and thence back to the Cooktown Museum, but with a new horizon of meaning added, that of reference to a pre-contact history. Um, a meaning that was highlighted in the text accompanying its display in Encounters, a text which, unfortunately, you can't read because this is another of my photographs, um, but which, what is said at the end here by the representative of the indigenous community concerned is that the importance of this was that for young indigenous Australians, it was crucial for them in being, hold on, in being able to hold an item that was held by our mob prior to contact, prior to contact. This past, the past prior to contact, has acquired a new political valence within Australia over the period since 1961 when archaeological excavations and the use of carbon dating techniques established a deep time for indigenous Australians. Indeed, not just a deep time, but the deepest time for any population with a continuous connection to a particular territory. The time, which now assessed at well over 60,000 years, has, in the, in the eyes of indigenous critique, has shallowed out those times of Stonehenge, the pharaohs, the pyramids, that had previously been markers of Australia's lack of antiquities as merely new guys on the block, so to speak. This, um, this deep time has since given rise to a range of relations of complementarity, supplement, and juxtaposition between the Western discipline of archaeology and aboriginal conceptions of time associated with what is popularly known as the dream time. This scientific validation of indigenous Australians as heirs to the world's longest continuing culture 
has shaped new points, new, a new politics of indigenous time that has played a key role in the re-socialization of museum artifacts via indigenous curatorial practices. Indigenous contestations of the temporalities associated with the figure of Captain Cook. Cook is the key figure in narratives of European contact uh, that led shortly thereafter to European occupation in 1788. Uh, contestations of the temporalities associated with the figure of Cook then have been crucial in this regard. Australia's bicentenary celebrations of 1988 proved a key moment in the translation of a scientifically validated Aboriginal deep history into a pointed political contestation of the dominant narratives of Australian nationhood. Uh, the slogan, 40,000 years do not make a bicentennial, provided the bannerheads of an Aboriginal boycott of the bicentenary that successfully foregrounded the conflict between indigenous and national temporalities. What do you mean a bicentenary? We've been here 40,000 years. This clash of conflicting times spilled over. It had a street life, as in Michael Watson's protest, Cuckoo, an economical critique of the timelines of colonialism in comparing Cook to the bird that lays its eggs in other birds' nests. And it's had a major influence on indigenous Australian art practices in the invocation of a pre-contact history in relation to which Sim Cook symbolizes not exploration and discovery, but invasion and colonial theft. Economically summarized, for example, in Reg Mombasa's Jim Cook mugshot. But these indigenous contestations of the timelines of colonialism have also been played out in Australia's museums and are being played out. And the Cooktown Museum is an interesting example. And it's an interesting example because it's a small museum in a, in a, a small town that's a long, long, long way from major metropolitan centers. It's interesting less because it presents solely an indigenous perspective than because as an instance of what we might call bicultural curation, it orchestrates a number of different takes on Cook's position as a contested linchpin in the relations between European colonial and indigenous histories. A plaque at the entrance to the museum juxtaposes European assessments of Cook's significance, like Charles Darwin's claim that Cook had, and I quote, added a hemisphere to the civilized world with indigenous artists um, Paddy Wamburianga's economical Too Many Captain Cooks, which is a reference to the place that Cook has long occupied in Aboriginal oral histories, as in the fuller version of what uh, Wamburianga had to say. Too many Captain Cooks have been stealing all the women and killing people. They have made war, war makers, those new Captain Cooks. Here then, to bring my account of this museum Full circle, how then, rather, to bring this account of my account of this museum full circle, does this relate to the exhibition of the canoe that I touched on earlier? This is shown in a room which in the visitor's itinerary comes after a room containing a replica of Cook's ship, HMS Endeavour. A model which, built in 1915, had for many years been pulled through the, pulled through the town on a wagon preceded by the Cooktown Brass Band in an annual procession of, in an annual procession of colonial possession commemorating Cook's 1770 visit to, to the town. The canoe is placed in a section of the museum where the kinds of Aboriginal artifacts that characterized 19th and 20th century museum displays still in their original cabinets are accompanied by wall charts reclaiming those objects as manifestations 
of the continuity of the local Gurugu Yimitia nation, a living culture, not a dreaming, one of the signs says, a living culture in spite of repeated and ongoing acts of colonial violence. But the canoe is a surprise. The canoe, a favored item of museum ethnology, is a surprise as it's not Aboriginal, but it's of New Guinean origin, reflecting in the ways in which it's spoken about, reflecting pre-contact histories of trade, those longer histories again, pre-contact histories of, of trade, and its display is not immediately alongside other Aboriginal items, but behind an exhibition of Chinese culture and before a window looking out to the river and the sea. Its purpose, or it is, it is presented as symbolizing the pushing out of indigenous culture in the past, long before the white man came, and its engagements with a succession of cultures since, not just, not just the English, but the Chinese too. And it thus serves as an icon of a long-standing pre-contact and continuing indigenous cosmopolitanism, and thus as a critique of shortened national temporalities. So to conclude, let me then return briefly to, to the theme of mutable immutable mobiles, and in doing so, revisit the questions I hinted at earlier concerning the relations between museum things and objects. The virtue of the perspective of immutable mobiles is that it draws attention to the properties of mobility, stability, and combinability that objects acquire from their inscription in different networks. In the case of museum things, the relations in which they are inscribed range from the local and immediate organization of their relations to other texts, uh, things and technologies in the overall museum environment, simultaneously architectural, discursive and material, that structure the relations between museums and their visitors. However, such relations need to be viewed in their turn in the context of the wider relations of collecting, ordering, and governing, through which materials in being brought together in museums from diverse sites of collection are subjected to distinctive forms of ordering. These forms of ordering are in turn informed by and give shape to the practices of governing through the ways in which the knowledges that are enlisted in the practices of museums act on the social in the, in the changes to the attributes and conducts of populations. Um, they seek to bring about. In an earlier discussion of mine on this question of processes of ordering, governing, ordering, collecting, and governing, I suggested that the operation of museum things is ultimately conditioned by what I called the distinctive forms of cultural objecthood that they form a part of. This refers to the more abstract realities like art, prehistory, community, difference, national heritage that are brought into being by such processes of collecting, ordering, and assembling. Realities which function as working surfaces through which the very knowledges that shape museum practices, archaeology, art history, anthropology, and so on, connect with the social through the varied kinds of civic programs they give rise to. What I sought to show more concretely in my presentation are the respects in which in a post-colonial society like contemporary Australia, the functioning of what were once ethnological things, but are being detached from that label, uh, the functioning of what were once ethnological things is now contested via the processes through which they are inscribed in new forms of cultural objecthood, which derive their authority partly from indigenous knowledges. But at the same time, I've been concerned to show that such re-socialization of ethnographic things are not and never could be a clean break. If we recall Nicholas Thomas's conception 
of reverse fieldwork, then critical indigenous practices in relation to museums might usefully be interpreted as ones through which, in this case, indigenous Australians seek to recollect and reorder the materials that they gave in exchange or that were taken from them in colonial histories in order to produce new realities of extended pre-national histories, for example, through which museums now act on the social. At the same time, though, we can see how such practices of recollection are in part shaped by the influence of, anthropological, of the anthropological concept of culture areas on contemporary indigenous Australian conceptions of the relations between culture and territory. This is not a criticism. To the contrary, such a double register for museum things is a necessary aspect of the negotiation of the relations between different knowledge systems that museums today in metropolitan as well as in post-colonial settings, albeit perhaps not so sharply, are inescapably caught up in. Thank you. Thank you, Tony, for this uh, wonderful travel from Cook to Cuckoo. The third tonight's speaker will guide our thoughts to the space we are in tonight and to the city where this event is taking place. Sharon MacDonald will draw a connection between the theoretical approaches we heard so far and the specific situation we are in with the Dali Museums being resituated to the Humboldt Forum in the center of the city. Shane McDonald's work is dedicated to developing new strategies of exhibiting anthropological or ethnological collections. She is not a curator of the Humboldt Forum, so we will not burden her with asking her to describe how the new exhibitions will look like. But she has followed the experiments in the Humboldt lab here in the museum closely, and as the Alexander von Humboldt Professor for Social Anthropology with her research group at the Institute of European Ethnology at the Humboldt University, she investigates the transformation of ethnographic museums worldwide and develops projects to find new strategies of exhibiting ethnological things. One of these projects is Making Differences in Berlin, Transforming Museums and Heritage in the 21st Century. And another one is TRACES, which is part of the European Project Horizon 2020. She is also the director of Humboldt University's Center for Anthropological Research on Museums and Heritage, and its research program and of the Heritage Future Project of the UCLA uh, London, which is funded by the United Kingdom. Her recent publications include Memory Lands, Heritage and Identity in Europe Today, and the International Handbooks in Museum Studies. While she collaborates with researchers, curators, and artists in her projects, also in her writing, Shane MacDonald focuses on curatorial strategies developed both in the context of contemporary art and within non-art museums, such as collections of artifacts. This, she has a very complex understanding of distinctions between art and artifacts and the ways things can change their status through changing contexts and narratives. Please welcome with me Sharon MacDonald.
Well, thank you very much indeed uh, to Bent for that introduction, and I'm glad to hear that I'm not responsible for the Humboldt Forum. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for organizing this extremely exciting gig, and thank you um, for all those who are part of the gig and who've been part of uh, organizing it, and to Viola Koenig for hosting it here um, in this space. So, here we are this evening then, um, in a building which, as we've heard already, is in this process of uh, the objects being packed away, uh, ready to move, well, some of them, to the new display uh, spaces in the future Humboldt Forum, others into storage, uh, some here and some elsewhere in the distant suburb of uh, Friedrichshagen. Now, this building was opened in 1970, and it was built specifically to house museums, including what became the Ethnological Museum, um, and it has purpose-built storage here on site. And today, um, organized uh, for us, uh, those of us speaking and, and others, was a visit uh, to the museum uh, storage, and it was really absolutely fascinating, I should say. And thank you very, very much to all the staff who were um, part of that. And I kind of wanted to begin with this fact that somehow there's something strangely compelling, or at least I find that, about um, museum storage, that going behind the scenes. Partly it's about going into this privileged space that other people don't usually get to see. But I think it's more than that as well. There, one's aware really of that just sheer immensity of what's been collected, just so much stuff. Uh, usually museums have um, less than 10% of what they have on display, often even much less than that. And what you're aware of there as well is that people have had to care enough uh, to gather it together, to put it into some kind of order, to put labels on those boxes, and to fight against the beetles and the moths and the mildew that would otherwise lead uh, to its decay. So a museum store is, in a sense, a kind of monumental battle effort against uh, ephemerality and forgetting. And it is and maybe especially in our secular societies, insofar as they are or not, um, maybe one of our most culturally prominent bids of defiance in the face of mortality and oblivion. In the cryogenic crypts of museum storage rooms, objects have not been abandoned or disregarded. They've been saved. Um, museum objects are only for the most part uh, sleeping um, though we did see today that they can get up and be sociable, and they can even go and have something to eat. Well, alongside this fascination, um, I think there's also, I, I feel as well, there's something also a little bit melancholic about that experience of going into the storeroom. And it's a melancholy of the kind that James Boone wrote about in an essay called Why Museums Make Me Sad. And he writes about how this melancholy is prompted by kind of dislocation and fragmentation of things, that they now seem disconnected from their former lives. And it's prompted by an awareness that things that once mattered perhaps don't matter so much anymore. 
And to me, it seems that that's all compounded by the fact that there is just so much of it. Now, that profusion of things, especially in museum storage, but actually also in our daily lives, is a subject that I'm um, researching, actually, in another project that um, uh, Ben didn't mention. Oh, no, you did briefly. Apologies. Um, uh, It's part of a bigger project um, called Heritage Futures, and our bit is called the Profusion Project. And what our interest is in is in how some things get to make it into the future um, and why, and especially those things uh, from mass production and consumption. But if museum storage reminds us of what has been forgotten, it also offers a very immediate sense of the potential of things, of the lives and labor that went into their making, of the ways of knowing and being in which they've been enmeshed, and the histories and journeys in which they are entangled before and then as part of their visit to the museum. So along kind the melancholy, there's this kind of thrill that there is so much imminent in the museum store, so much sleeping that could be awoken. So let me then briefly, in my intervention here, reflect upon this cultural phenomenology of storage and what can be involved or unleashed in waking up sleeping objects. But first, and just briefly, as we're contributing to this dictionary of now, and on the word uh, thing, I wanted to briefly point out that the things that sleep in museum storage are not um, necessarily straightforwardly things. Indeed, um, in the views of some people who work in museums, they're very emphatically not just things. In my own work as a social anthropologist, one of the things that I have done and do is hang out in museums Um, with the things, the people, the ghosts, the smells, and so forth, that populate them. Now, my first sustained uh, period of that kind of fieldwork was in the Science Museum in London. And there I spent over a year, day after day, um, doing the kind of observant hanging about uh, that gets called ethnography. One day, quite early on in that um, work, there were some cups around that had been brought it into an office which were going to go into a display case. And I referred to these as objects. <gasps> no, 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 I was told uh, by my curator friend. Those are not objects. Dear, dear, they're just case dressing. In other words, they're, they're just there really to set the scene in a display case. What they were, they were just ordinary things. So, ah, what exactly is an object, I asked, um, and how would I know the difference in future? So the curators who I was with swiftly offered up various definitions. Anything with an inventory number was the first thing, said very authoritatively. Um, uh, And then to my puzzled frown, because I didn't know what an inventory number was either, um, what we have stuck a label on Basically, said another, it's anything you can put on a pedestal and worship. Um, Though sometimes perhaps one might wonder about what those things are. Um, Anyway, here, uh, 
what we've done so far, my colleagues and I have talked primarily about objects rather than things, though things have come up too. And that makes sense because what we were asked to talk about uh, was especially in museum contexts. And here it is objects that rule the roost. We shouldn't forget, however, that objects swim in a semantic matrix, not just with things, but also with other terms such as stuff, artifacts, and entities. And in German, the soup is a little bit different again, with Dingen, Objekten, and Gegenstände, which don't quite match up to their Anglo counterpoint counterparts. And each term is, of course, further semantically entangled with others, such as subject, person, and property. Now, those meanings aren't ones that are just simply imposed upon the museum. Rather, museums are part of the agency of making those. So through their um, acts of selection, they're picking out of some things for saving and sacralization, putting on pedestals. Through those ritual processes of transformation, they make objects in their particular sense. Now, that very particular kind of relationship with things is very brilliantly highlighted and played with here in Berlin at the Museum der Dinge, the Museum of Things, where in its permanent galleries, it displays in really proper museological fashion things that are not usually regarded as museum objects. Um, and there's a particular emphasis on things that are usually seen as bad taste, ungeschmack, and the stuff that a connoisseur curator would surely reject. So categories such as ornamentation in the wrong place, a collection of things with ornamentation in the wrong place, or decorative brutality, and others there are like hurrah, kitsch, and so on, or take this, images of praying hands. These work like Borges's imagined Chinese dictionary to make us aware of the contingency of all classification. There is always a surfeit of possibilities. But why do some cultures perform this strange activity of turning some things into objects and promising them longevity? Well, anthropology, people trained as social anthropologists, one of the ways you try to sort of think about those things is you look elsewhere for examples of practices that kind of look a bit similar and then you think about, well, in what ways are they and are they not? And I thought it would be interesting to think in this context about potlatch system that was um, present in uh, 19th century in some native North American groups. What happens in potlatch is that vast amounts of things are gathered up, sometimes over quite long periods of time. So, yeah, in a way, a bit like museum cultures, gathering things up. But then what happens is that in great ritual displays, they're given away, or sometimes they're actually just destroyed. Now, anthropologists who've looked at uh, Potlatch have variously argued that what this is about is the gaining of status and power for certain leaders and groups by showing off their capacity to accumulate and then also disaccumulate at will, that it's part of, a com of complex systems of reciprocity and obligation enmeshing groups together, and maintaining and dispersing social power. Now, 
There are certainly parallels here, it seems. Status and the performance of the very capacity to accumulate are surely part of what's involved in the ex existence and continuity of museums as cultural forms too. But so far at least, they do not habitually achieve this through periodic, high-profile ritual acts of redistribution and dispersal, as in potlatch. Though here again we might notice that the Museum der Dinge has teased conventional uh, museum practice, um, in this case by inviting artist Antoine Scragen into the museum to destroy things with his machines designed specially for the purpose. Um, now, there are undoubtedly many hopes and social bids that underpin and propel the existence and persistence of museums. Among those, let me especially note the very fact of the promised durability. That is, museums' capacity to tell us that some things, those that get designated as objects, can be made to last. That the pursuit of immortality via some things, is being attempted even in secular societies. Well, it's tempting to see that maybe as a kind of ideological support of materialism and capitalism, a kind of justification for valuing things over people. But in my view, the museum is as much an argument against the fast-paced cycles of consumerism and disposal on which capitalism rests. It is also for a different set of values, including those of long-standing care and the valuing of people, yes, people and memories in relation to objects. At the very least, the museum and its multitude of stored sleeping objects contain these multiple possibilities, as well as the tensions to which these often lead. Well, let me here turn to the stores of this particular museum um, and some, to some of the objects that can be found there. And as you'll know from Arjun and Tony, we were asked to uh, include discussion of something from this museum's collections. And I decided to choose um, objects that have been the focus of some work uh, undertaken by a researcher who I'm extremely lucky to have working uh, with me here in Berlin at the Center for Anthropological Research on Museums and Heritage. Here's my obligatory uh, uh, thank you slide to all of those who should be the, the institutions who are part of that. Um, a center I, I founded here um, a year ago. So Margarete von Oswald, um, who's here tonight, and I'm very pleased about that because she might be able to answer questions I can't. Um, she works on the Alexander von Humboldt-funded project called uh, Making Differences in Berlin that uh, Bent mentioned, and specifically on its theme called Transforming the Ethnographic. Now, before beginning with me here in Berlin, Margareta worked here in this museum um, with Africa curator Paula Ivanov, and she participated in the Humboldt Lab Dahlem, uh, the Probebühne, the uh, set of exhibition experiments that were designed to develop ideas and approaches for the future Humboldt Forum. And in the experiment that I want to um, describe too briefly, I apologize for how brief it is, uh, in this one, she worked together um, with art historians Verena Rodatas, who's also here, 
uh, tonight, and Ramon uh, Chibozo, who's a professor in uh, Benin, um, as well as with uh, uh, other people too. But on an, ex uh, um, an experiment called Object Biographies that was shown here in 2015, and that drew in part on uh, Arjun's ideas and those of Igor uh, Kopitov to trace the histories and roots of objects that, in this case, uh, had led um, the, the, these objects to this museum. So what they decided to do um, was to take some objects that had never previously been put on uh, display here, um, that had only been in storage since they came to the museum, which was in the uh, 1960s, and which at the beginning the museum didn't know all that much about. So, in effect, this was an example of waking up uh, sleeping objects and unleashing their potential uh, to tell stories that hadn't been, been told, um, or of doing what they called activating the storage. So, here's... Um, uh, an object that I've uh, chosen. It's from Benin, and yeah, you probably can't read its label. Um, so there it says Dahomey because that's uh, the name uh, previously. And it's part of a category of object that Fon people called Bocio. And the pointed bit at the bottom, that's because what usually happens is that they're put into the ground so that they stand upright. And and I draw here on the work of Susan Preston Bleers in her really brilliant work on the African Vodun religion. Um, and these objects, she says, um, that the word bocio is made up of two parts, two radicals, and that the second of these, the chio, um, usually means a cadaver, a dead body. And that relates, she says, to their status as fake corpses, whose role is to trick death, to act as a decoy when misfortune comes looking for victims. Chio is also said to relate to the word chi for dirt, disgust, and debilitation, indicating this emotionally charged potential of these objects. The other radical, the bow, indicate something like activation or empowerment. A bow is something that can order you to do something, and if a bow orders you to do something, you have to do it. Among its secondary senses is something like mud or mire, so something in which you could fall and get trapped, or at least stopped in your tracks. So what you see here then, and I've really done well, no justice at all to an incredibly sophisticated set of ideas, are things that are already uh, there in the world of which they're part. They're breaching those categories that theorists such as Latour, about whom we've heard, have been trying to shake up distinctions between humans and things, ideas about where agency lies. So here then... In the storage of a museum such as this, are objects that are capable of such active ontological and epistemological shaking up. That capacity derives from their lives before leaving Benin, but it's also increased and gathered on their journeys. And I think it's also, you can see it in their very form. This one is a commoner, boccio, possibly made for tourists, 
But nevertheless, I think it does emanate uh, something of the sleeping power of such person things. Sometimes Boccia worked more emotionally powerfully um, by, for example, incorporating mirrors or having uh, so, so that mirrors so that they reflect back encroaching malevolent spirits. Or maybe having their surfaces pierced with objects um, as these ones uh, maybe uh, once did. Or perhaps being layered over um, with other objects and tightly bound with cords uh, such as those here. Um, and Preston Blears suggests that they get bound sometimes because it's sort of holding in the full force of their power. Um, and at the same time, uh, referencing chains of generation and perhaps also the histories of slavery that have deeply shaped uh, this part of the world. So in the object biographies experiment, Margareta, Verena, Romald and colleagues uh, researched the multiple histories and collections of the Boccio, um, including their entanglements with colonialism, independence, primitivist aesthetics, ideas of the fetish, art markets, tourism, and their absence uh, in contemporary Benin. And then to get, and I, I can't tell you, you can see that there's a lot going on there, um, so I won't say anything about those uh, in particular. But what they then did together with a design company was create an exhibition um, that highlighted these multiple histories and perspectives and, and here in this museum position next to the museum's Africa galleries, maybe also indicating something that was absent uh, in some parts of those. So what's shown so well in this experiment um, of uh, activating the storage is that museum storerooms are an immensely rich repository for creating new engagements, not least through the processes of research and its collaborations itself. It's one of what I actually think now there's this great energy of um, creating uh, interesting uh, experiments that are underway. One model that we've often seen in museums is one in which artists are brought into museums, and that language brought in is how it's often put. They're brought in to make an intervention either into an existing exhibition or maybe as a very specific part of the exhibition making process. Now, that has produced some, yeah, really neat provocations and so on. But surely there's more that can be done. And finding ways of working collaboratively over longer periods of time as part of more lasting relationships between curators and other researchers, um, artists, and well, as well as people with other interests in the uh, objects, including heritage communities, stakeholders, and so on, are those labeled in those ways. Um, that's a very important task. And that's something that some of my karma researchers are also um, working on, um, including as part of this Traces project uh, that Bent mentioned. And, uh, there you see the long title of that, this Transmitting Contentious Cultural Heritage uh, with Art from Intervention to Co-Production. And as it's 
uh, name indicates, its, it's uh, uh, subtitle indicates, the idea of that pro project is to um, think about how one can move from just the intervention style to other kinds of model. And our concern there is also especially with problematic and contentious objects, such as this human skulls collection in the Vienna Museum of Natural History. Um, so looking at objects that maybe are especially dangerous to wake up. Now, many objects in museum stores uh, may indeed be dangerous to wake up. And perhaps especially in ethnological museums um, with their histories of appropriation, including colonial. But such waking up is productive and necessary, not simply to show that there's some purpose for all those gathered things, but also because such reactivation and reanimation can lead to new relationships, new ways of seeing, maybe to new ways of working across old divides, as well as to new debates and creative engagements. And of the kind that I think that we are seeing in some of the examples that we've heard uh, from others today and in uh, the uh, Humboldt Lab Dahlem, and that I hope we're going to see uh, and debates we'll hear about even further in all sorts of locations uh, in the future. So thank you very much. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Sharon, for this insight in your research and for the reanimation of the Benin objects in the context of Bruno Latour's philosophy. Um, we have now a 20 minutes break. There is soup and drinks over there. And then uh, we will follow with a discussion, uh, first on stage, but later on also uh, your involvement in this discussion is most welcome. Thank you. We heard uh, three very interesting uh, conceptual approaches. And what I would like to do in the first round here on the, on the podium is perhaps to bring in more the politics of exhibiting and collecting. Uh, all of the speakers were referring to in one way or the other to, to, to this. But since we are in a, a very interesting situation at the moment in Berlin, uh, I think the, the politics of museums of, about, of uh, collecting is a very uh, issue uh, which is in more or less all our minds. Um, Arjun mentioned that these objects and the collection of these objects are not only telling something about the cultures they are coming from, but very much so about the situation of the collectors. And uh, my question, my, and uh, Tony was referring on the two different time concepts related to these objects in the context of nation building in Australia and in the relationship uh, to the Aborigine uh, 
uh, concepts of time, of deep time, in relationship to the nation-building uh, time. So, uh, as we all know, uh, these collections play a major role in the 19th century in, uh, re in establishing the nation-states. And uh, my first question would be, uh, if you could, could elaborate on uh, Artun, but everybody here on, on, the, um, uh, on the floor, elaborate what do these objects tell us about our societies? Number one, um, of course related to the politics, but also uh, uh, what do they tell us about the concept of humanities, of ethnology, of uh, cultural sciences, um, and uh, having in mind what you said, Arjun, is an ethnological museum still the right frame to present these objects, or do we need other frames of uh, museums to uh, deal exactly with this issue of reflexivity, what they these objects are telling us about our societies. Uh, yeah. So, thanks very much, Ben. I'll just say something very uh, spontaneous uh, about it, because I know, having listened to Sharon and Tony, that uh, they will also have some very definite uh, thoughts on this. But just taking up the last uh, piece of your question, I think, yes, ethnological collections can be, but ethnology has to change. <laughs> so there's a condition. Um, and that is true, actually, of many relevant disciplines, archaeology, art history. Uh, none of them can just stay as they were and then ask for new challenges to be taken up. So I think ethnology has to change. But the, uh, and so ethnological collections such as Dalem today or the Humboldt Forum tomorrow, which will be at least partly ethnological, uh, can do some very important things, but they will have to reflect uh, on their history, reflect on it critically, reflect on it uh, creatively, because I think uh, they need to know or they need to figure out a way to be as much of our time as earlier museums and so on were of their time. Tony Stock brought this out, that the BM, for example, changed in, in the 19th century from what it was in the 18th century. So why shouldn't we change? The big question becomes, uh, what will the change be about? Uh, and I offered for the German context particularly, and maybe the European context, one way to be in the now as opposed to simply continue. Uh, and simply continuing is also okay because the task is a very important one, it's a big one. As our colleagues reminded us today, it's incomplete, it's slow, it's difficult, it's expensive. So I'm not uh, one to say all this must stop, something else should begin. But all I would say is maybe something else can be brought into the picture. And today my thought was uh, one that's on my mind now, but it's certainly not the only way to go. And that is to bring the discussion about human displacement 
into the same conversation as the one about object dislocation. But that means minimally one thing, to recognize that these objects also tell a story of displacement and dislocation. If we don't do that, then the engagement with humans can never happen, or with displaced humans uh, can never happen. So another way to put it is perhaps simpler, which is to say, but doing it is not simple. The idea is simple, but doing it is not simple, which is that ethnological collections particularly, maybe all collections, but certainly ethnological collections, need to stress circulation more than, let's say, sheer representation, meaning as belonging to its time and place and so on, but circulation, because we live in a world of circulation. Um, and these objects are testaments to that. So I would say, yes, ethnological museums can do it, but they need to do some new thinking. And one way to do the new thinking is to stress flow, circulation, multiple moments, uh, and so on, as opposed to try to extract the single one that's most important, which is seen as the originary one. And if I can just add one more thought to that, uh, through Tony's talk, but also through Sharon's, what's evident is that that search for the originary meaning, the meaning that belongs to the indigenous place, or the time of use, etc., is itself a bit of a moving target. It's not something you can pin down and say, well, that's it, you know, that's the one. It's always going to be through the lens of our views, our disciplines, our technical capacities, and so on. So why not take that fact and turn it into a strength? rather than turn it into a weakness, which we are constantly trying to correct. So I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment and let uh, Tony and Sharon... Before the other there. answers, uh, just adding uh, a question. Your project you have in mind, can one do just on the, as far as exhibition projects are concerned, just on the basis of the collections as they are, or do they do one has to see them in a broader context of other collections, European collections and so on? That's also a wonderful question. I must admit I have not thought it through well, but I would say that uh, the collections as they stand probably will not be enough. Uh, so they will either need supplementation by, let's say, bringing in the object archives of migrants themselves. What do they have with them when they move? That's also objects. They are also there. But what they are is not normally paid attention to. So that's one way. Um, another way is to bring in, and this is another of my own interests, as you know, uh, to bring in objects that are not normally treated as ethnological objects, the euro. What is this thing, the euro? What is this currency? What were the currencies before it? What did it displace? What is this thing called the EC card, which everybody tells me in Berlin is the best thing to have? Well, I've never heard of the EC card. I first thought it was an easy card, but it is EC card. But these are objects of our now, which are vital to our lives as economic actors and so on and so forth. But they belong to the category of currency, notes, cowrie shells, there's that, which are part of these collections. So, but they are our, they are our, let's say, archive, living archive of 
you may say sleeping objects. Uh, because sleeping objects, not because they are really sleeping, they are very active, but sleeping because we don't think about them much. So we think they are sleeping. <laughs> but the euro is not sleeping, you know, uh, it's very awake. Uh, but it is something which is also material, it is part of wealth issues, it's part of inequality, and it connects to uh, migration to the Greek, uh, to the German relationship to Greece, austerity, and so on. These seem like they're very remote from the objects in, say, Dalam, but I think there are ways to show directly that all the forms of money that were used in all the many cultures of the world are something that our forms currently of currency, digital and otherwise, also link to, and that reflecting on them that way can do two things. One, it can make us ask new questions about those objects already in the collections, and it can make us rethink our own currencies and tools for exchange and so on. So, very simply, Brent, no, I think the collections on their own, it would demand too much to make them do this work. So something else has to come in, and we are surrounded by the, let's say, detritus of our own current civilization, we should use it, you know? Just go on, this is the question. Um, well, I'll pick up on the question about um, ethnological framings, and say, and I'll relate it to the Australian context, and I'd say that uh, for quite some time, but in two different ways, objects have been, so to speak, fleeing an ethnological framing, uh, in two ways. One would be, and this would go back to something that's been on in process since the 1930s, is uh, the, the movement away of many objects that had previously been classified as ethnological and uh, exhibited in, in ethnological galleries, usually of combined ethnology and natural history museums, into art history collections. And this began to happen with, I think the first date was about 1939 when Bach paintings which had hitherto been classified exclusively ethnologically, were displayed in a, an art gallery. And it's um, uh, indigenous art practices, both now traditional and contemporary, are a very significant component of Australian art galleries. Um, uh, by far and away out of proportion to the percentage of the population. I mean, Australia is about 2.8% of the population's Aboriginal. If you go to any of the major art galleries, there'll be about 30 to 40% of their floor space. It is, you know, it's roughly that. It's a lot more than th two or 3%. But the other fleeing of the category ethnology but, has to do but with- But what does it do to the objects when they are transferred in this oh, other well, context? Uh, it, it, means the, it, it means that obviously they're depicted along Western and Australian forms of canonized art. It means that in many cases, they are particularly if they, if they're 20th century productions, they're removed from uh, anon anon anonymous creators to ones with um, uh, artists that are classified. It means that attention is paid to their form rather than exclusively to their function. Uh, all those. So it means that they're placed within an aesthetic. But was it not in the Australian case, especially that this? Um joining the art market uh, was very important for uh, Australian Aborigines also to political uh, uh, voice, political uh, uh, points uh, in a more international context? No, no, that's true. 
the period that I was talking to, the, 19, the 1930s, was the period at which uh, Australian art galleries first began to classify uh, indigenous artifactual productions as art. What you're talking about now in terms of um, the, the production of, as Fred Myers put it, an, an indigenous high art, an indigenous modern art, is really quite different. And there are many different branches of it, contemporary indigenous art practice. Particularly significant is the distinction between those that derive from um, uh, places that are remote from urban centers of population, places like the Papunya Desert Artist, acrylic dot painting, um, which have been, which were hitched into the international art, art market through all sorts of complex operations which involved the activity of indigenous artists but also the operations of a whole boast of inter intermediaries like the Australia Council, art agents and so on and so forth. Uh, there's also, th th there are also indigenous art producers who are more ur urban located who will resist the category of indigenous art, actually. I mean, there's a kind of this, it's, it's resisted as an essentializing category. So the indige indigenous art scene in Australia, is, it's very varied. Um, it, it is presented, different kinds of art are presented in different kinds of galleries, and there are disputes between uh, different indigenous artists um, that are usually managed in-house, so to speak. Um, so that's a very complicated scene. But the other reason, just to return to objects fleeing ethnology, they, they also flee ethnology. It, it connects to the questions of deep time that I was talking about in, in the presentation and that you, you referred to. Because the production of uh, a deep time anchored in uh, the notion of a continuous Aboriginal history is also a disputation of the deep time in which Aborigines were previously located precisely by ethnology. So that was the deep time of the primitive. And the deep time of the primitive was that of a flat time. It was that of a time that had failed to develop. It was a continuous, you know, uh, you know, the reason. Uh, uh, so uh, Aborigines within Australia have always been located as part of a deep time, but the deep time that was produced for them by ethnology is now a time that is disputed, as well as the short time of the nation. So there's a very complex set of temporalities that inform um, indigenous intellectual practices and the ways in which they would connect with museums. But the point about this would be that most Aboriginal activists, most indigenous activists now, would, would favor a, a, a framing of, uh, you know, they would favor a framing of their cultural materials that is, um, in some senses, outside an ethnological classification. But I must say that this is something which um, uh, many Australian anthropologists work with indigenous communities with the same end in view. So it's a kind of, you know, an ethnology of the past rather than necessarily uh, anthropology in its contemporary forms. Thank you. So I wanted as well to pick up on this question of is it the right frame and maybe there is it the right name. I mean, we do know that lots of ethnological museums have been renaming themselves as world museums, museums of world cultures, uh, and so on. On the one hand, I guess I think that these kind of museums, um, well, what we see is they are generating so many uh, debates. This kind of event 
that we had tonight, the kinds of research going on, that's really, really happening. So if we want to say, um, you know, what kind of museum is able potentially to kind of raise and reflect on questions about who are we today, what's going on in the world, um, all that kind of thing that if we think that's what the 19th century national museums were doing, potentially they can do that. But can they do it in this form of now and that particular kind of form of ethnology or anthropology? I'm a kind of social anthropologist or social cultural anthropologist who was part of this kind of movement that sometimes gets called the repatriation of anthropology itself. But what you do um, is not, uh, well not all the time, uh, go and look at uh, very, very distant places, but you really turn that same kind of gaze uh, back on uh, practices that you might be involved in yourself or things going on in your own society, and in my case that includes museums themselves. Now that kind of anthropology, I mean to me, you know, was, I guess as a student when I, you know, had to kind of, had to, wanted to, uh, read about many, many other societies, that was exciting in itself, but it also generated so many interesting questions. It made you stop taking for granted things that you thought of as really, really obvious. And to me, socially, culturally, that's a really important thing to do. And so I think if anything is going to make you think about um, the nature of your own society and things, these kind of museums do have that potential. Having said that, I think the way in which they're often framed as somehow about uh, the other, the distant, the way in which they do focus on what they already have, if that's what they do, um, that that is a limitation and a problem. Because to really unleash that kind of potential there, I think you do have to mix it up. You have to go across that Europe, non-Europe uh, division, which is what it often rests upon. And I guess I think there are ways one can stir things up uh, more without losing uh, what's there already. Um, in order to fulfill the tasks you are describing, and especially you are pointing to uh, uh, Arjun, uh, with relating the refugee issue to the uh, issue of uh, the displacement of the things or the objects, uh, does that not um, ask for very different uh, ways of knowledge production altogether? Uh, that these established categories people, let's say, on the one side uh, working on other cultures, people uh, reflecting on politics, which is basically European politics, um, uh, people reflecting on the material world and the others on social, uh, um, uh, so social sciences. Um, do we need very different ways of knowledge production altogether? Uh. A wonderful question, man, because it opens up whatever we say, the three of us, uh, others in this room, about what is valuable but what needs to happen for the potential to be unleashed in Sharon's phrase. Uh, the next question becomes, what are the conditions of possibility for that? 
what institutions, what practices, what training, what, and you're opening that in your wonderful question. Uh, and I have two thoughts on it. Uh, yes, all of it has to do with, let's say, the politics of knowledge, therefore the politics of knowledge production, therefore the politics of disciplines, fields, yeah. professions, uh, which is a central question to me of the sociology of the modern West, is the formation of professions, the formations of disciplines, the formation of the university, including Humboldt, which is the first research university, everybody knows that, the very idea that a university can be dedicated to this strange thing called research is a German idea and it's a Humboldt University idea. Uh, and it came to the US and so on through from Germany. So it opens up a very big field, but without getting lost in that, just me say this. And I've written a bit on this over the years here and there, that uh, one approach to this, which I think is interesting, is the idea that we have to somehow be interdisciplinary, so art and archaeology and so on. My view on that always has been to be interdisciplinary, you have to have disciplines. In other words, there is no way to be just rise above and be everything, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we have to have disciplines. So I, I don't believe in deleting, say, art history or archaeology or social anthropology and just saying, well, they simply don't make sense anymore, let's create something new. Uh, what I do think is this has to be some kind of new play, uh, recognizing that all disciplines or ways of knowing and ways of are historical artifacts. They come and they go. That recognition is very hard for most normal practitioners, as it is hard for nation states. To say they come and go is already something where you can end up in court you know, for saying they come and go. The same is true with disciplines. If you say anthropology can come and go, or art history can come and go, a lot of people are going to get very pissed off. But that's the truth. These disciplines have a short history, and they do change all the time. Can we guide and direct that change? And my response to your question with this kind of pre-discussion is to say we do need somewhat new conditions, but actually I think all we need, rather than the kind of illusion or utopia of rising above or collapsing all distinctions between discipline, et cetera, which, you know, maybe it's a lovely idea, but it can never happen. It never happens because we are what we are. We are trained in a certain way, et cetera, is to do what the great, uh, late great economist uh, Albert Hirschman said and did, which is to regularly trespass, to move across, to go into a field which is not your field, and to not accept the idea that as an anthropologist you should not talk about science or as a, you should not talk about technology. Trespass freely and continuously, but recognize that you are crossing something, not just you know, in some free space where you can think about anything, you are crossing into another space. So I would say for museums and for the first question with which you began, some trespassing is required. And in this case, I think the trespassing is across some known spaces. Material culture studies, anthropology broadly speaking, art history broadly speaking, perhaps archaeology. It's not every field. It's about four or five. But 
in those fields, I think for them to change, one strategy is simply to pick topics, issues, problems, like several of Sharon's projects, wonderfully exemplify this, where you have to trespass. But trespassing also requires discipline. I mean, in other words, you can't just say, well, I'm going to go into STS. Let me write an article for it. Well, you have to read. <laughs> you know, there are things you have to do, but, but you can do it without having been all your life doing that. So that's my personal angle on how to create a new space, is that you do it from the spaces we have, but you do it by encouraging more free uh, movement, but where there are tickets. You have to pay something. <laughs> you have to read something, etc., etc., in order to cross those lines. Something like that. I don't know, it's not very helpful, but initial thought. Okay. Um, of course, museums always decontextualize and recontextualize objects. So uh, on, let's, on a formal level, you can tell whatever story you would like to tell with, uh, with the objects you have in mind. Uh, having said that, uh, number one, is, is that true? Because if the object speaks themselves, as uh, you mentioned, uh, and there are potentially in the objects as material stuff, uh, they may resist some narratives. Uh, that is uh, question number one. Number two is, even if we have the freedom to choose what kind of narrative we want to uh, tell with the objects, do we have, at this moment of time, also an obligation to tell the stories of the people from which these objects were taken, uh, which were for a long time excluded out of the museum. So is there a, a, a moral, political op obligation to, to work with uh, the people, the, uh, the cultures, the societies these objects are coming from, even if we know these are not the only stories to tell with these objects? Is that to me? Yeah. Whoever. Um, well, the latter part of the questions bit easier than the first part of the question, I, I'd say yes. Um, I mean, I think that if we're talking about, you know, anthropological, ethnological objects, they're so clearly bound up with histories of colonialism um, that um, retelling, these, retelling these histories, engaging with these histories critically, means uh, some form of engagement with the perspectives and narratives and so on of the peoples from whom these objects were taken. I don't think that tells you exactly how that kind of involvement should be orchestrated, and I think that it would of necessity be different uh, in a place like Berlin from in a place like Sydney, in a kind of like, you know, a center of colonial power from the past to, um, you know, a post-colonial settler society. The issues are posed differently, the opportunities are different. Um, I've got a slightly different take than, than Arjun and perhaps Sharon on the kind of like the resistance of the objects and the power of the object itself. Kind of like, yes in one sense, but we can never know what that is because we can never access an object or a thing independently of some context in which it's institutionally organized, discursively organized, socially organized. Um, so it's a kind of like... Um, 
I think the, the, what's attributed to the resistance of the object is a resistance of one kind of like articulation of the object to another articulation of the object. If the thing in itself exists, no one can ever tell us what it is. Uh, Tony's, I think, very important point. I guess I'm still puzzling over my gut feeling that people like uh, Tom Mitchell, you know, are right that images want something in his word. What do pictures want? That's his great essay and book title. I think he's right, and I've read his book and I've used it to teach, and I'm still thinking over what could it mean? Because either it means something profound and deep, or it's something where we can never really establish what it is, so nice idea, but what does it mean? Uh, so I'm, I'm with Tony on the skepticism, but my current working idea is that, that what objects demand is a product of the cumulative history. It's not just this context, it's all its context, and the object bears, can bear those marks if we listen right. It is also true with people that even though they're alleged to speak, it's not that therefore the minute they speak we understand what they say. We have to do a lot of work with what somebody human is saying. So I think there's not a dramatic difference. Um, so that may be the, my optimism in how we can allow objects to speak is allow the burden of their full history to speak to us, not hope that the stone will tell us something mysterious, etc. But I, if I may, a quick second point on this very important question of involving uh, people from the communities. And honestly, this question arises whether it's Sydney or whether it's India or whether it's Berlin, it's arising all the time, even if it's long distance here. We should bring somebody from uh, the Arctic or from Alaska here to tell us, etc. So somehow the question is live. I'm going to say something here which uh, is slightly uh, risky political statement, which is to say that I understand the politics of this, and I even support it, that you cannot zero out the place, the original place, or the place from which these people can act like there's nothing there, we just have the object and we'll tell whatever story we like. That said, I'm absolutely uh, sure that it's a solution one or this business of involving indigenous specialists or artists or museum people or uh, whoever in the question how do we establish the meaning and significance of the object is a limited solution. Why? One thing we talked about earlier today is I know of no place where the indigenous voices are not themselves in debate. Who's going to regulate that debate? Well, you can get another indigenous person, but then how do you choose? And say, well, this indigenous person is going to choose between those two other indigenous views and tell me the right one. In other words, take me to your leader approach. That, to me, is a problem. So in the end, I do think we have to practice the scholarly things that we have been trained in, not in some mechanical way, but we have to make a judgment. So somebody in India tells me that a piece of tribal art from Bastar means this, and then somebody comes from Bastar and tells me, actually, no, it's not that, it's this. I have to make a judgment, and I have to make a judgment as a scholar. So I'm saying, at the end of the day, I have to, not alone, but I have to be part of my field and make an informed judgment, and I cannot just simply say, well, 
I have my friend from Bastar, he tells me this metal sculpture means X, answer solved, things settle. So this is not in, direct, in opposition to you, Tony, just saying in it general, is, it it's is. my view. Tony is going to respond to that. I make two points in. Two points in. Two points in response, yeah. Um, in reverse order, I think. And uh, I don't think I disagreed significantly with what you just said, but I think that it's, uh, it's one thing to, to speak about these things in terms of discipline and scholarship, so long as the debate is confined within the limits of Western knowledges. In Australia, over a number of recent museum exhibits, particularly around questions of the exhibition of colonial violence, what has been raised is the value of knowledge passed down orally through indigenous traditions versus disciplinary knowledge. And you, that, uh, you can't easily resolve that by saying, I'll go to scholarship, because what's being claimed are forms of evidence which, which do then get disputed by historians who rely upon texts, but it's often then can be confirmed by archaeological and so on. So it's very awkward when you have a system of knowledge that is non-Western, that relies upon different protocols, different ways of passing down knowledge from past to the present, you can't just simply appeal to the authority of Western disciplines. The second point I make, and it would be about this kind of, going back to the objects and, you know, what does the work of art really want? What does it want us to listen to? Well, it might want us to listen to all sorts of things. There might not be one thing, and if we're to hear the accumulated history of objects, then something needs to tell us about them. And this was your point about what was missing from the ways in which the objects in this collection are, are curated and described. To be sure, it's really important and useful and, and critical to know about the accumulated ob histories of objects, but they don't carry their accumulated histories on their surfaces to the innocent, uninformed eye. And that's a part of the, the, the responsibility of curators which very often they, they fail. Uh, but may also uh, having your um, thinking in mind about the, let's say, process-oriented way of looking at objects, maybe also museums are not about what is the true meaning of an object, but uh, on negotiations of social uh, processes. So, so, so we, 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 perhaps we have to look very different on the museum practice and what the museum is for a society and uh, not asking this question of what is the, the, the only or right meaning of one object. I mean, it seems to me that today, yeah, there are some museums that behave like that, but for the most part and certainly in lots of ethnological museums, there's a massive kind of move towards saying, and often exhibiting, here are a whole range of ways in which we could look at this, we could think about it, and rather than this sort of one truth idea, I think that we don't see nearly so, so often now. And that, I think, has often been really productive in terms of thinking about ways of exhibiting uh, objects and so on. And I guess it relates, too, to some of... Uh, these questions. On the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Tony, that you know you need to be told, and it's maybe maybe I really only mean it's at the edges of some of these things that there are. I mean, I think there are things about scale and uh, presence and figuration works in particular ways. We see um, things about how scale and size of body and 
people will sort of mimic particular uh, actions and so on. There are things I think one can also do uh, with museums and that extraordinary um, nature of, of that they have a, the particular kind of medium that they are because they incorporate so many other uh, media. They have this three-dimensionality. You move through them. You, you know, those things can be... Um, those parts are part of the scenography, but there are some things about objects. At the same time, I absolutely agree that there's an awful lot that needs to be somehow conveyed, and a big challenge for museums with histories is how can they do that without great panels of text or audio and so on, and that really is quite a struggle, I think, for museum staff. Uh, before I open to the floor, I just want to evoke one image uh, which came into my mind when we saw the boats uh, of the collection, which are really impressive. And we got to know they are moving now to the uh, Humboldt Forum, and there is one specific room de de defined for them, and they can just enter, they cannot leave anymore. So they will be there for the next decades, perhaps hundreds of years, and if I look, let's say, at the theories of the last century, maybe Marxists, uh, structuralists, post-colonialist theories, the boats are still there. Um, just uh, to, uh, this image, I think, is a quite interesting one. Uh, so with these words, I would like to open the, the, to the floor. Uh, I think we take two, three questions, and then, uh, yeah, go from there. The boat issue was not meant to cover each question. Yeah, I, I do not really have a question, but a remark. My name is Peter Vermens. I'm not a social anthropologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a cultural historian. I'm not an art historian. I'm not even German. <laughs> the problem here is that I'm a museologist. And that is really a problem, because all the issues addressed here are part of a discipline, and I'm very much into multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary thinking, but speaking about cultural biography of things, yes, of course, we are aware of your book, and, and it's a sort of Bible, but especially here in Germany, they have developed this idea of musealization, which includes everything that you were referring to. And Can you just sorry? Musealization. And, um, and, and, and connected with that is the idea, uh, for example, uh, uh, put forward by uh, Janet Marston in her book about a new museum ethics, idea of transparency. And I think here it's all about transparency. It doesn't matter what sort of stories. There are hundreds, thousands of stories you can tell. But the main issue here, and I'm not contradicting you because Tony said something similar, but the main issue here is being transparent, being honest and open in what you do. Okay, further. Comments, questions. We thought this is a controversial topic. Oh, hello, uh, my name is John Paul Sumner and um, I'm a muse museologist as well. And it was just to pick up on what Sharon just said at the end there, which I thought was 
quite interesting, which is one of the issues that I'm faced with on a daily basis working in a history museum, which is, um, you know, how do you present the, the entire world history without screeds and screeds of text on the walls having to explain everything? And I suppose one of the questions that I'm faced with, which is maybe what you were alluding to, is whether there is an obligation in a museum to tell the whole of world history um, on, the, on a wall so that people can put what they're looking at, the object that they're looking at, in context, because you have to read this panel first so you can then understand the context before you can understand the, the object, or whether there's an alternative way of doing that, an alternative way of communicating um, with a, a museum audience, for example, which doesn't necessarily involve putting the object maybe in a historical context, um, or maybe doesn't need to explain the, uh, the, our concept of where that object came from, but actually maybe talks on an emotional level maybe, or maybe talks on, um, as we mentioned, referring to some uh, contemporary objects which might have a similar meaning and therefore explain it in that way, which doesn't rely upon text on walls maybe, or labels so much. And um, Well, I suppose working in a museum, I suppose what you echoed what my day-to-day -day experience is, which is about trying to explain these things and try and put them in context, but without using words, which can be a challenge. I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but certainly um, what you were saying rings true there. So it's okay. not a question, just a long story. Oh, we don't have to answer, great. <laughs> no, basically it's a question, uh, how to contextualize without using language. Okay, next point. Yes, uh, my name is Lorenz Rollhäuser. I'm from Berlin, a journalist. Uh, when I hear about the social history of objects, I think that is very right, but I would like to know if that does prevent us from thinking about possibly repatriating things, giving back things, or is this history now ours too, so we don't have to think about that? Okay. Perhaps we take one more question. Professor Abdurai, uh, thank you for your interesting presentation. I, I was very intrigued by the idea that we have to look at the journey of, of things more than at uh, representation itself. Um, but I was wondering how this idea could be put into practice. Um, and regarding this, two questions came to mind. Um, uh, the first one is, um, if we really were to take all the relevant questions um, that you raised in your presentations into consideration, would that not mean or that, like would that not mean an influx of, of information and knowledge um, in the in the museum context? So I mean <clears throat> the curators are also are already very busy, you know, arranging uh, the objects in, in the in the in the museum. Now they have the additional task of arranging all this knowledge and all the information. I guess it's uh, it's not um, it's not a good solution to the problem to just print a 300-page textbook and put it next to the object and hope that uh, people might read it. Um, I guess, and this relates to the question that was previously previously posed. 
there might also be um, different ways of presenting this knowledge. Um, I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on that. And my second question would be, um, maybe I missed this in your presentation, but um, you talked about the, the museum's responsibility of um, uh, putting more emphasis on the circulation of, uh, of, of the things. But how about uh, the um, viewer's responsibility of engaging with this kind of thing? Is it like, is the viewer's experience only in a way a valid one if the person like knows about all these biographical um, facts of, of the object? Or is it also um, a valid way of engaging with an object like with total, being totally ignorant about things, you know, because that would have like significant ramifications on how we, how we like create create the experience. We might have to, you know, effectively deny uh, access to the object um, in a way uh, um, uh, up until the person has actually acquired all the knowledge necessary okay. to understand uh, what, the, uh, what the biography of the, of the object is about, right? Thanks. Um, I think you have to think about this. And perhaps Tony is asked, uh, responding to the first question of restitution. Oh, repatriation. Uh, repatriation, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't have too much direct knowledge about. I don't have too much direct knowledge about debates about repatriation. I've not been directly involved in them or involved in any uh, repatriation processes. All I know is that it's not a simple matter. Um, in terms of whom the negotiations have to be conducted between. There have been some conversations I've been involved in today about this needing to be between government and government, museum and museum. Uh, also the involvement of the communities from which um, objects, things were taken. Um, but repatriation, I only know about these debates in the Australian context, they often pose real problems for the communities to, to which they are to be returned. On the one hand, there is, as I indicated in my presentation, on the one hand, there's a kind of like a yearning for them to come back to the place that gives them their true meaning. On the other hand, uh, sometimes bringing objects back can produce kind of like problems about, well, what do we do with them? Where do we put them? Who's responsible for them? And they can sometimes reactivate conflicts. Um, so repatriation isn't, isn't a simple matter. I'd like to say something briefly about, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not a museologist in the sense of working professionally in a museum, and I deeply sympathize with the points that have been made about, well, you know, you can't do everything. And um, we're having a kind of like a fairly highfalutin discussion, as it might say, and the reality is, is that, you know, people come through the door, they come through the door with kids, families, etc., and the visitor has to be taken account of, uh, clearly. Um, and, um, uh, but I don't think that politicizing displays or making, making well, two points. I, I don't think that making displays kind of like speak politically nece is necessarily best done by a kind of uh, massive multiplication of, of text. Textuality in museums now, I think, is a kind of a bit of a problem. You can go there and you can kind of say, wow, you know, crikey. <laughs> Have I got to read all of that? I mean, and that, that's an issue. Um, but there is in the history of kind of like surrealist practices in relationship to museums and so on. There are other ways, there are other strategies of making objects speak differently or be listened to differently than necessarily um, uh, 
multiplying the, the textual accompaniments. Can you give an but example? I can't, in the, not offhand, no, because um, I want to make another point. <laughs> and that is, uh, this is an area in which, uh, you know, when we talk about museums, we need to talk about museums of different kinds and their relationships to the public. And it's an area in which the, the work of Pierre Bourdieu is still compellingly relevant in terms of who comes to museums, what kinds of competences they have, and these are different. Uh, they're different in terms of who goes to an ethnology gallery. It's different than who goes to art museums. There's there massive differences in their publics. So we can't, we can't speak across all the museum types. There's all these questions about how to engage with the visitor are of the same order. Can you like to add to the re repatriation issue? I mean, just very briefly, I maybe slightly misunderstood the question, but um, I think, I mean, what we see when there are questions about repatriation being raised is that they really require and they usually mobilize even more kind of historical research and so on. Now, it might be maybe the po your, your point was that when... Um, uh, that, that you can't you kind of can't tell the histories of the things and keep them in the museum if you're going to give them back as it were but again there's lots more strategies I think and I think what we've, we've seen some brilliant examples in museums where there has been repatriation and that's been part of building up kind of relationships and finding other ways of um, displaying things including displaying absence and that's something museums uh, can do as well in various ways. Achun. Yeah. Um. I'm um, going to respond to your two questions uh, with the other comments uh, in mind and say two quick things. Uh, the first is uh, uh, expression of a limitation on my side, which is I too am not a museum professional, so I don't have a detailed imagination for how something could be done or could be done differently, could be done better. Uh, and my ideas reflect that, that limitation, though, I mean, my first job was at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where the anthropology department occupied two or three floors of a building which was, seemed like it was the size of parts of this, and it was the University Museum, and it had Mesoamerica, it had the Andes, it was a massive museum complex in which my anthropology department was not part. So every day I walked through many civilizations, the objects. So I've, I've been in this environment, but I have not thought in that way about how it could do things differently. That said, uh, I completely understand that there's no uh, uh, payoff in uh, adding burdens to curators, uh, such as might be the result of following some uh, complaint that I have. Um, certainly it's ridiculous to have everybody read 10 volumes of Will and Ariel Durant before they look at a, a bison hide, you know. Uh, but I do think things can be done by exemplification. In other words, you need only one object with which you ask these 20 questions and give some answers. And people can think about it for all the others. So you don't have to have tomes. You can just have it strategically. And I think you can change the climate. So that's a very limited approach. And it is an approach 
that is relatively conservative. That is, it's still saying there is a story, there is material, there is text, you have to have some words, etc. But it doesn't have to be thousands of words and it doesn't have to be everything. It can be done strategically. And I think that many of the curators I know know a lot, but they are constrained by the format. It can only be in this month. Okay, well then that's what's going to be there. But if you have some way you can do it occasionally in richer detail, and of course you could do it also visually, you could use photos, you could do, you could do thousands of things. It doesn't have to be boring, but it would mean more information. That is true. On the second point, I think also is very important, which is what about the viewer? Does the viewer have to have a PhD in, you know, some own studies before he's permitted to have an emotional or she response to an object from Oceania? Well, that obviously would be an in both unrealistic, patronizing, and elitist. Say, till you do that, I won't show you this object, you know, and you have to take an oral exam in Oceanian studies or something. Clearly ridiculous, but um, I think what that says is still that if you have, and this goes to Tony's observation about types, that if you have something called an ethnological museum, I think it's difficult to get away from saying not every experience is equally important. You can't just come here as if you're, you know, in the road seeing something. It's, it's a building with funds, with a budget, with experts in it. It has to answer to something. So, what it opens for me is the question of other forms, and it goes to the comment of the gentleman uh, a little earlier about can this be done differently, rather than by just adding more history, adding more documents and so on. Yes, it can. But it raises some interesting problems. What, for example, if I took all the objects here in Dalim, or some important parts of them, let's put it that way, and turned them all into installations in terms of contemporary art. Just say, what's this stuff about exhibits and notes and it's from here and from there? Just turn them into installations. Now, many artists are doing that kind of thing. But nobody has said, let's wholesale turn museums into contemporary art installations. It's not a ridiculous idea. The reason I don't support that, because that would open a different viewer experience. Let's take a more radical example. Let's turn every museum into a kind of Disneyland. I just go and, you know, I have little rides that I take. And, well, why not? People go to these places for entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. I'm not Adorno, you know, it's okay by me. But why have this place? When you got Disneyland, when you got 15 avant-garde art exhibits, when you've got 1,000 community centers, why still have this one? What is its job going to be in that ecology? And my answer is a bit old-fashioned, which is, it's the right job, it just needs a little more care with how it's done. So in that sense, my response is conservative. It's not one which says every viewer's, uh, not only response must be respected, every viewer's motivation must be expected. So if I brought my five kids, who would have preferred to go to Disneyland, and I say, why is this place not feeling like Disneyland? Well, because it is not Disneyland. <laughs> and it's not an avant-garde art exhibit, it is not a theater, it is not a lab, it is something we call an ethnological museum. Now, that said, so I still believe, you know, we have to have some distinctions, and we can't simply say every experience is valid, every viewer must be respected, because you can't do it practically, you can't respect every viewer. You are guiding, curating actively. So that's my thought. It goes back to Ben's original question in a way, 
which is how can these things, can these places function just as they are? And my feeling is, of course, not just as they are. But I also think the effort to completely have a remake, say, I'm no longer ethnological museum, I'm an entertainment center, or I'm a digital art center, or I'm an installation center, or I'm a science lab, or I'm, you know, something, that cannot be done so lightly, I feel, uh, because it, it lets us off the hook of doing the original job in a more thoughtful manner, which I think can be done without, to go back to your first question, without making it impossible for the curators who are already doing a heroic job, but simply some redirection of some, some of those same energies, something like that. I think one can add two points to this, uh, or I would like at least to add two points to this. I think it made already a major shift if the exhibitions you do are related to the context the viewer is coming from, and not about context the, new, uh, the viewer has no idea about, uh, uh, because that you were asking for. To, to, to do exhibitions which are referring to the social political situation we are in and which we are sharing with a lot of these people coming from different parts of the world. This is a, 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 a first remark. The second remark is one, uh, I mean, we are such educated societies, at least if I look at Berlin and, and other places in Middle Europe, one should not underestimate the viewer. Uh, uh, and uh, sometimes I have the impression that um, people of museums speak about uh, normal viewers as if they have no knowledge at all, um, or at least not about the type of uh, projects they are working about. I think this are, I would like to add this. So, is there another urgent question? Because we re oh, very urgent. Okay. It's a short thing, really, only. Um, it's about maybe the importance of not knowing or the, like, leaving things to be unknown and making that an important part of the exhibition as well because we can ask a billion questions and still only understand a, fracture of, uh, a fraction of what the thing really is. So maybe, I don't know if there's really anything to have to be said about that because it's been in the like in the conversation the entire time but I would just like to point that out that it's really I think the not knowing and accepting that things cannot be understood sometimes or shouldn't be understood or we shouldn't think that it is possible or there's a necessity of understanding but there's a necessity of understanding that we do not understand at times. May I just say one sentence? I totally agree that we should not uh, get drawn into some kind of totalizing academic ideology where we will do more and more and then one day we will know everything and the viewer will know everything and the object will become that most horrible of things which is transparent object. Everybody has talked about transparency. We don't want transparent objects. We want objects that resist, that have mass, that have presence, that produce awe, that produce wonder. All I would say again is I'm with you, that, that I think awe, wonder, melancholia uh, about these collections, which I also experienced today, and Sharon, your talk gave me a better understanding of that, uh, better even than Jim Boone's wonderful article of some time ago. But I still think that the experience of that uh, limitation 
that place where you run up against that other not understanding also has a form. It's not, mm. I mean, my sense that I don't know something should not be the same when I'm in front of that object as it was before I came into the museum. But I also know there are a lot of things I don't understand, like why is Trump going to be the, possibly the next president? I certainly don't understand it, but when I come to the museum, I want to have a different sense of that terrain of what I don't know, et cetera, et cetera. That, so that I would say is, is, is still important, not to just say, well, we have limits. There are things we don't understand. That we don't need to go to the ethnological museum to find out. That we can learn you know, in many, and we do. But in the museum, I think we need to have a special path into that sense of, oh, at this point, I'm just blown away, or I'm humble, or I'm silent. But it should happen in that way because of that object, not just at large. First of all, um, that wasn't one sentence, Arjun. <laughs> we all have our rhetorical style. No, no, no. no. Um, we all take up time I'm, in different ways. I'm going to say in two sentences. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's an interesting question because it, it opens up for me the issue around the aesthetic. Because uh, obviously, debates around the aesthetic are about the aesthetic is opposed, not opposed to knowledge as an antagonistic toward it, but presents itself as a kind of like a non-knowledge relationship to the work of art or a response to the work of art. And so it's clearly the case that our responses to everything that exhibit, all things that are exhibited in museums, cannot be kind of like reduced to cognitive understanding. The debates around the aesthetic kind of make that uh, impossible. At the same time, um, there is a tendency to kind of like think that the aesthetic response is something that's just kind of like let loose and the spectator's entirely free, etc. And I don't think that's the case. I think that displays that are organized aesthetically exercise what I've what I'd want to call the kind of like a form of guided freedom. They produce a kind of like freedom and response, but at the same time they channel it in certain directions. Um, so that even though the response may not be um, one of understanding, it's a response that's still kind of like given a steer. Um, it's given a steer. Yeah, I just wanted to say something as well to this good point about the not knowing. And really, it depends who the, who's doing the not knowing as well. And I think one often feels as a visitor that there's all sorts that one doesn't know, but that the institution doesn't know certain things is a different matter. And I think that actually, and that's probably maybe what you're referring to most, and these questions we've been talking about, about, you know, how do you tell all these numerous histories that it was all missing in the catalogues and so on without lots of text and so on. There are strategies we know that places put in computer points for those who want to go and uh, look more and so on. But actually that sort of present, a potential presentation of, yeah, we know everything, maybe is in itself can be problematic for the institution. And I think a lot of what we've been kind of thinking about in various ways is how to sort of unsettle some of the certainties or ways in which things are conventionally done and that I think is where that's really important so it's ways for museums to be able to say some of the things 
we don't know. We don't know, always know all the histories. There's more. We only ever can tell a part. We only show 2% in this museum of what we have. There's so many more things. Why did we choose these? We're never going to be fully transparent. I mean, to go back to Peter's uh, point there, that's not possible, but showing more, being more transparent in some of those ways or telling some of that, not about everything, but that can be a strategy, I think, for kind of unsettling and opening things up. But we do see some of that happening already. So thank you, especially our speakers, and thank you for your patience, and we hope that we unsettled you a little bit.